Okay, the first uh, Radio Mysterioso uh, remote. interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. People are probably wondering what the hell is going on. I can't monitor this because it's going to drive me crazy. It's like that uh, somebody invented a torture device that repeats back to you um, everything you said, like. And it beams it into your head about about a half a second or a second delayed from when you actually said it, and it's uh, it's it drives people crazy. It actually actually physically drives them crazy. You better unplug that. It's a Pee Wee Herman effect. I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? Yeah. Stop copying me. Stop copying me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's Radio Mysterioso. This is the first uh, remote broadcast. I hope people can hear it. Message me on Facebook if you can. I've got that up. Coming through loud and clear. Carlos says thank you, Carlos. We are in uh, uh, Southern California in San Diego County, but I won't say the undisclosed location. Um, Disclosed location. Yeah. We're down here for Sigrid's birthday, and I decided let's just let's just uh, see you know really take the bull by the horns and see if we can do a show, an actual real remote show, um, from somewhere. Yeah, the show is now on the road. I've known I've uh, known Don and and his wife for. How long, Don? That would be awesome. Uh, 90 15 more. years, 20 years. Yeah, it's like 20 years. You were at our wedding yeah. 21 years ago. Yeah. yeah, I was at their wedding 21 years. There's a picture of me at their wedding 21 years ago, and I have hair. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. <laughs> Remember we were at Nick's uh, party there where he had the... Uh, oh, that's right, even earlier than that. Oh, you transmogrifier. Oh, that's what I met you at the uh, space space club party. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's about about uh, ninety two or one or something like that. Peter Stencil told me about that party. That's how I came. Ninety. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was nineteen ninety. I've known you guys for 22 years. Okay, <laughs> um, and we've always uh, 
both of the, both uh, Beth and Don have uh, informed a lot of my opinions and told me about all kinds of cool stuff. Today we were sitting out in the uh, uh, in and near their swimming pool talking about all kinds of weird shit, and Don brought up some some um, a lot of stuff. The only thing I remember though is the uh, uh, the the Mentos um, Diet Coke uh, jetpack idea. <laughs> I think that's a good idea, Mentos Diet Diet Coke jetpack. Yeah. Uh, I'm not very. We have to. Uh, we have to crowd closer to the microphone. I've sort of got. Hey, let me. Let me sort of like drive myself nuts. Okay. Yeah, we have to stay pretty close to this damn microphone. I've only got one. Um, luckily, I've known him a long time. Anyway, the other thing was. Uh, there's dogs in the in the room with us. That's fluffy. Uh, <laughs> the other thing you'd mentioned, Don, was uh, what did you say? You were reading a book about a new theory of perception, something like that? Oh, yeah, I was reading an uh, interesting book by uh, this professor of cognitive psychology, Alva No, I think it's N O E, about the, uh, some of the new ideas about the nature of human perception. Yeah, and I said, oh, you mean that, that, that uh, what we perceive is what the reality is? And you said, no, it's a step past that, actually. I'll turn I that down so we don't hear it going. Yeah, I was sort of difficult, for, it was sort of technical and difficult for me to understand, but what I gleaned from it was that our perception, our ability to see is intimately sewn in with our sensory motor complex, he calls it, our ability to move about, move our head back and forth, move our eyes back and forth, move about in the environment and configure our perception of objects with our ability to move around, completely inseparable from our ability to move around, which I thought was very unusual. I used to just think that, that it was just a, an eye looking at a picture and the image goes in slam dunk on the brain and that was what you saw. But that's not the case. We're intimately tied in and mated with the environment and our ability to move around. What's the, oh go ahead. He called it the inactive theory. Inactive theory? N-active, yeah. E-N. Inacting. All right. How do you spell his name? Alva No, A-L-V-A-N-O-E. I think he's a professor of cognitive psychology. Oh, okay. I'm checking some um, uh, stats here, possibly, if I know where to check them. I will also give out a, a Skype number. I don't know what my Skype number is. It's actually on my phone. Moving the, moving the show right along very quickly. Well, well, we'll worry about that later. I just wanted to make, Carlos says we're coming in fine, so that's good. Um, you know those dogs are going to, uh, since they know they have to be, because they're quiet the whole time we're here, but as soon as the microphone comes on. <laughs> are they off right now? No, the, what, the microphone? Yeah. No, the microphone's on. We're offering testimony. <laughs> That's right. Well, Fluffy's up on the, he's up on the counter now. Yeah. yeah, it is true. He looks pretty happy. You know the I'm not complaining joke. about the dogs, I'm just saying, I just know, maybe you know I don't know. the old joke, he's such yeah. a liar, right? Yeah. Who? The talking dog. Oh, vaguely. 
Well, I, I missed some of what we were saying, at least to as a uh, permanent recording. <laughs> I'll edit it down. What we were just talking about, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, is the, uh, the uh, problems of dualistic thinking and um, as applied to the uh, paranormal and UFO uh, field and how the, uh, the precipient, the, the uh, witness, or whatever you want to call it, is... There's a there's an interaction going on at a, I think at a subconscious level that um, we tend to ignore when we're trying to think of things in nuts and bolts terms. Um, and Don was kind of egging me on. Uh, I've talked about this kind of stuff on the show before, and people have heard it from me, and and you have too, Don. Actually, I know we talk about it frequently when we're taking a dip in the pool. Yeah. <laughs> but what do you think the role of the government is? I mean, I see. I sort of get bored to tears with the discussions that involve the government, like the the disclosure ideas and yeah and and why when because it seems misleading that the government would be so confabulated with aliens and UFOs when it's as though this thing with disclosure we're looking to Big Brother yeah to, to hand us the keys. Of what aliens are or what they aren't, when probably we have all the information in front of us, and Big Brother's not needed. Yeah, well, that's a. Uh, I've brought this up before. It's an old uh, a John Keel joke, sort of a half joke. In one of his books, he he explains basically just what you were just saying, and his his quote is the uh, UFO researchers aren't telling the government what they know about UFOs. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Meaning, to me, it's kind of a bombast where, yeah, where he's saying, um, let me turn this recording down so it's not blasting. What he's saying is that we have, you know, as, you know, just regular Joes, we have all the answers. I think what the, the disclosure people want is that the, for the government or somebody in authority to say, yes, there is something here and we don't know. Well, what they want them to say is there's people coming here from other planets. That's what they want them to say. Right. Um, well, we I, already know that. Yeah, and I, I've had this guy Grant Cameron on my show, and I, it's uh, the title of the talk, actually, of the interview is Disclosure Has Already Happened. And he, <laughs> what, what he said is, how much more proof do you need that the government knows about the subject and is interested in it and is kind of nervous about telling anybody about it? You don't need any more proof of that. That's not the disclosure. The disclosure that the people that are arguing about it want is the disclosure where they can say i told you so and i don't think they're going to get that one because the government is just they don't i don't think they know exactly what's going on is basically and two i don't think it's what everybody thinks it is i i could be wrong it could be aliens coming here from other planets but it seems so simple it seems too simple to me and it doesn't account for a lot of the data i mean it's like how many times does somebody need to come here how many people do they need to test how many different like craft did people fly in what are they doing? I mean, is it like thousands of civilizations coming here? It's like, oh, no, they're all those, you know, bug-headed gray. No, they're not, actually. If you look at the history of um, anything, any living thing or humanoid or whatever you want to call it associated with UFOs, they're all over the map. They go everywhere from, from like, the hairy dwarves in the 1950s in, the, in South America to um, humanoid-looking things, perfectly human-looking things, to... Things that look, some guy said look like beer cans on little fins hobbling down the road to 
you know, something that looked like an octopus with no business walking down a road, but kind of just basically floating, bird-like things. People have seen all kinds of stuff coming in and out of these strange flying things. So that, to me, is not indicative of things coming from other planets. It's just, to me, it's too complicated. It's so interspersed with what we expect. It seems, you know? it seems, it would seem logical, too, that perhaps, and obviously since the time of Copernicus and beyond, we knew that there was other planets beyond and in the solar system. And in fact, one of the most upsetting things about the Copernican, some of the ideas of the theory, yeah. was not so much... Uh, geocentrism, but the idea that, like what uh, Giordano Bruno was suggesting, was that the universe was infinite, populated with planets with people on them. Yeah. That was more upsetting, and the loss of the, and the, loss of the prima mobile. Mm-hmm. But I think it would be illogical to assume that if there were other people on other planets... They're so far away, they would not need to go and come. They would not need to go come here in a spaceship, physically travel here in a spaceship. Going and coming would be trite terms. <laughs> Silly. You wouldn't need to go and come physically. Right, right. I, I see what you mean. Uh, they could do it mentally or uh, experientially or, you know, through some sort of remote control device or something like that. Or what I think is be able to unhook from that time and space thing and just be able to pop into existence wherever they want in some form. At right. least in a form that we can perceive with our senses or at least our, um, uh, what do you want to call it? that our senses make into some sort of being with some sort of thought process or whatever. They would, it would be as though the collective unconsciousness was a traversable region of space and they could appear, Yeah. they could appear clothed in, in the archetypes that we harbor and, and yeah. have. Yeah. They would appear to different people in different ways. Mm-hmm. I've gone over this many times, I think in my writing and, talked about it on the show but it's a, you know it, I, and I've talked about this with Don too um, the other thing to, uh, that Don's interested in that we have been for a long both of us is uh, do you want to talk about it the cactuses oh yeah not not just you the Don actually grows cactuses he's a he's a he's a cactus and succulent um, farmer and dealer I grow cactus and succulent from all over the world yeah agaves aloes euphorbias Mm-hmm. cacti and so forth mm-hmm. and so he knows a lot about cacti and, and including the non-scheduled ones which he does not grow because they're illegal but you told me there was some guy doing what was it san pedro enemas that you'd heard about oh yeah i had heard about that <laughs> san pedro is a type of um uh cactus that has psychoactive properties inside the flesh of the actual cactus and you have to actually cut them open and somehow extract that. Uh, what is, is it? Psilocybin? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, mescaline. Mescaline. Okay. Yeah. There's there's mescaline. Mescaline is ubiquitous throughout the entire genus of Trichocerus. 
Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so trichosiris grow everywhere in people's gardens. It's everywhere. Is that the is the San Pedro a specific genus of it, or is it? Uh, no, San Pedro is a species, Trichosiris pachinoe. Uh, in shamanistic circles, also known as the little teacher. Oh, that's right. The uh, big teacher being peyote, peyote which is right. endangered and recommended not people leave it alone. Yeah. I was uh, I used to know this guy West Nations and he said he went down to Big Bend National Park and he he uh, he was camping there and some guys told him they they had gone into Mexico and they had um, gone to this little town like across the border and they they said that the what was it there was this there was some American there that was kind of like running the town, and they asked him if he wanted anything. Like, do you want do you want women? Do you want beer? Do you want um, peyote? And they said, really, yeah, you have peyote. So the guy like talked to somebody, and this little kid came running in with a whole like bushel basket full of um, uh, uh, no, I can't remember the name of the cactus. Peyote buttons. Lofo for a Williams guy? They had the whole peyote cactus in there, not the buttons. They had gone out and pulled the entire thing out of the ground. Oh, that's tragic. Yeah, and it was an entire bag, like a big, and they had more bags. I think they're really being decimated and sanded down in their habitat by people constantly sawing away at them. Yeah, and all you have to do is pick the, the, the <clears throat> only psychoactive part is the buttons on the top. Right. And they yank the whole thing out of the ground. It's a big carrot root bottom yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he, I, you know, when I heard, and this was what, like fifteen years ago. So who knows what it's at now? I think they have uh, probably heavy laws on the book to protect them. I hope so. Not like it makes any difference in Mexico. There's probably none of them left in the United States. Well, what do you need that for? When you got the little teacher that's ubiquitous, probably growing in your backyard and has just as much in it as you could possibly handle. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Once you learn to recognize them, they're all over town. Yeah. Well, you can if anybody wants to, I guess they can look them up. Anyway, you said this guy, and the problem with it is that people ingest it and they start throwing up. And it, there's all kinds of alkaloids in it that are bad for your digestion. But apparently if you shove it in the other, <laughs> the other way, it's okay. So he was taking yeah, San Pedro, uh, uh, psychedelic enemas. <laughs> I don't know. I can recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't talk about um the uh psychedelic or or entheogen or whatever you call it experience much on my show. I just I never get the chance to talk about it with anybody. I mean, I, I would like to have Graham Hancock on. Oh, yeah, the the, the DMT thing? Yeah. What or, do you, what, or, do you, what do you think about the uh or Strassman? I want to get Rick Strassman on at some point. What do you think about the uh People who've given doses of DMT register like alien encounter type yeah. experiences. Yeah. So, but I've reflected on that. Yeah. And what do you think? Uh, in another, my perception of you would have corresponding chemical changes in your brain as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't think just because someone's given DMT and elicits a certain response means that the DMT is responsible for 
the response, I think, is that DMT is part of the experience, possibly, of, uh, of that type of experience. How do you mean? Because are you saying that the, the it's it's the it's not the people's reaction to the to the uh, the DMT? It's the it's the perception that the DMT offers to anybody. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that causes it. You know, I'm saying that the DMT is a type of neurotransmitter that's used by the brain. So for the brain to have that type of experience, it may utilize DMT in the experience. Oh, you mean it, it, when people aren't sitting around smoking or having it injected, it may be active within the experience people call an abduction or whatever. Right. Yeah. And it may be... Because it's naturally occurring it, in the brain. It may be tied to the to the earth in some way. Yeah. Because uh, those types of neurotransmitters are ubiquitous in the environment. They're in plants and right. floating around everywhere. Right, right. Everybody just likes them. Yeah, DMT is just a substance that's uh, is a compound that's extracted from various plants, and some of them have more of a concentration than others. Like I get, Phalaris grass has a lot in it. Really? Yeah, and there's a few other things too. I heard it's in Arundo grass, which is invasive waterways type of. Oh, really? Plant looks like giant uh, crabgrass growing in the waterways and taking them over. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it must play some role in that type of experience of a possibly of a UFO or an abduction. Yeah, at least for us. I mean, it, it, I think that's what I I believe Hancock said in his book. It, what, what's it called? Um, I think it's called the Supernatural. No, he had a book basically about psychedelics and their connection to human history. Um, uh, our perception in general, our evolution, and then on top of that, kind of the, you know, he dips into the UFO and paranormal experience, too. And he's saying, and a lot of other people have said this, too, that uh, what they do is DMT and some other these things are like a key that unlocks certain things that are basically living in everybody. But they're just waiting for the key to come in there and the, the little chemical key to come in there and unlock it. So that that type of experience or that being or that force or whatever it is, is associated with that chemical lock. Hmm. And I've heard that actually for years, many times. And you know, from what I, from what I remember of acid and DMT and 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 uh, uh, mushrooms, all those psilocybin, they all they all. You know, if anybody who's listening and knows this, you know, takes these things, you know that they all have very distinct, different experiences. There's really specific, what's the word, um, uh, aspects to all these things, and you know it when you're doing it. You know, for instance, you don't ever see, you know, beings made out of bejeweled-looking, round, ball-like beings on on uh, psilocybin, but you do see them on DMT. So I think these things are, are, are ways to, you know, I th maybe psilocybin is more like some, uh, and acid are ways of unlocking us from, from time, logic, all these things that sort of entrap us in our normal uh, consciousness. And uh, DMT, um, uh, God, what are a couple of the other, what's the, uh, the injected one that John, uh, John Lilly was doing for years? Uh, There's a, I read a book about a, Type of DMT called 5-MeO DMT. Yeah, 
that sounded really weird. I didn't realize there were different types of it. Yeah. But this type, I guess, you would take and have a, just a complete whiteout experience. Hmm. I don't understand what the plus would be because you would just wake up and not know what happened. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> sounds. Have a, have that sounds. Have a big whiteout. Yeah, that out. sounds like Daytura actually. Not really, well, not really a whiteout, but Daytura, it's always a bad trip, and people say they, you know, if they take enough of it, they they wind up like days later, miles from where they were with their underwear on or something. They have no idea what happened. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's, you know, there's stuff like you said, like DMT or, or Salvia Divinorum. What's in that? They, there's not... It's not DMT. It's not psilocybin. It's um, it, well, the active ingredient, strangely enough, is called salvinorin, and I can't remember what the connect, the uh, chemical uh, makeup of it is. But that's a completely different experience. There's there's a few books out. There's probably more out now on salvia divinorum and how that changes people and what that experience is like and what that teaches people, if you want to call it that. And then and then you've got something like. Um, um, What's the root from uh, Africa? I can't think of anything. I can't think of names anymore, Don. The um, root that people take to get off like nicotine or addictions or whatever. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Well, but anyway. I can't remember the name either. We <laughs> need to try, try some to <laughs> refresh the memory. Well, I, I've heard of people going... Let me figure it out. I, I now I have to know. I got to know. But those people that have uh, unusual personal experiences don't necessarily ingest any drugs at all. No, you know. Uh, yeah, it's, it says it, it, none of them have the actual name on here. Uh, Ibogaine. Ibogaine. That was it. That's like an abuse type of drug. You take ibogaine and you well, withdraw from other types of addiction. Every single person, almost every single person that takes it, says if they have some problem in their life, it's whether it's smoking or eating too much or you know problems with their parents or some personal problem. What the drug does is it actually takes you. But we you 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 uh, have the drug. I guess it's. Uh, I think you eat it. But there's clinics, I guess, in there's some in Mexico now. They're not here because the thing's illegal here. But in, uh, and it's not, you know, it's not all sweetness and light. Sometimes a couple people have had very bad reactions to it. I mean, it's a, it's a minority, but it's happened. Um, a couple people have, like killed themselves a day or two later. Um, but mo for most people, that what the experience is is it basically they say it's like having somebody take you by the hand pull you back to whatever point in your life made you start doing that bad thing that you want to get rid of, and it shows you what happened, how huh. you got to that point. It zeroes in on that somehow. Like, you know, if you, you know, beat your wife a lot or something, it takes you back and says, well, your father beat your mother, and they beat you, and this is where it came from. And if you want to stop that cycle, you know, realize that, you know, all the pain that was causing it, basically it makes you, very, it, uh, makes you empathetic to yourself and others. To try and get rid of, you know, whatever, you know, problem that is. And I've talked to people that have taken it and they said, that's exactly what happened. That's, that one's like an African in origin? Yes. It's from somewhere in Africa. I'm interested in the ones that we had here in the Americas. What did we have? We didn't have a... 
Well, we had tons of stuff. We had Daytura. We had... Uh, we did, I don't think we had mushrooms here in the drier climates. Cause no, they didn't, no. Because they wouldn't grow in the, uh, in the dry climates. We had Datura, uh, Morning Glory, maybe. Yeah, and um, peyote, obviously. And those were traded actively up uh, between the Indian tribes. Actually, you know, tribes yeah. way the hell up in the northern part of the United States, or northern part of what is now the United States had access to them and tribes, I think, out to the West Coast. Um, I believe. Somebody may correct me on that. But Mushrooms can be dried and put in honey and last quite a long time. Yeah, I don't know too. if they knew so, that. Maybe, maybe they did. But th yeah, those are native to, native to more like central Mexico where it's more like a tropical climate, I believe. Oh, and then there's, um, you know... Uh, uh, tobacco. Tobacco and uh, psilocybin cubensis, which is in the Pacific Northwest. Cubensis grows there in the northwest? Yes, on there's, cow turds. <laughs> there's psilocybin cyanescens, which grows in the cold climates in the Pacific Northwest as well, which is a small little diminutive mushroom, which is supposed to be like a 10x oh, really? variety. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Adam but, uh, rightly wants to know who the hell I'm talking to. <laughs> is that Adam? Yeah. Don Newcomer. Uh, yes, this is Don New uh, Adam Goretti said, dude, and MIB visited Farrakhan in jail. Yes, that was in the uh, the uh, clarion call or whatever the uh, Nation of Islam's newsletter was sometime in the 1990s. Farrakhan said he was visited he by was an MIB. He was visited by an MIB? Yeah, or, or a, a space brother, and they told him, you know, that the, the Nation of Islam is approved by the space people. Um, Horse was no, with no name was written on shrooms. <laughs> I was visited by the... Uh, mother of MIB here the other day in the nursery. How do you mean? Well, I was uh, alone in the nursery, and in comes a, uh, I hear the crunching of gravel, and I see dragging into the nursery this huge mammoth Cadillac, the entire bottom gilded in chrome, <laughs> shining, and it comes slowly pulling in, and out of the driver's seat rolls this gigantic 400-pound uh, man. He could barely get out of the car. And I thought, well, I'm not going to... I'll have to get the electric car and drive him around. Yeah. So I drive up, and then out of the passenger seat comes this old lady. She must have been 90 or so, she, all hunched over with a giant bright red dress on and and a and a huge hunt beehive hairdo with a white stripe going up the side. Oh, she looked like the Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, like Marge Simpson, Bride of Frankenstein, hunched over 90 years old. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to sell too many plants, so I just put her in the car and, and drove her around the nursery, and, and she just wanted to talk about the plants and look at some of the plants that I had and yeah. pointed out some of the ones that she had. Yeah. I was driving really slowly because I was fearful she would just blow out of the car and fall <laughs> on the ground and be crushed. Yeah. And, but everything went fine and I drove her back to the big uh, walrus guy and she, <laughs> she she hobbled back in the car and they drove off again with a crunch of gravel. So I like to Imagine, you know, that she was some sort of mystical character that had visited me. <laughs>
You should have some way of taking pictures of these people that come in. Uh, uh, they Adam probably says, they yeah, probably, I know, Don. They probably wouldn't stick. So, so <laughs> wouldn't, the MI, picture wouldn't work. An MIB visited Farrakhan, did he say that himself? or? Well, it's, I, 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 uh, Sigrid said I shouldn't be looking stuff up on the Internet while I'm doing the show. Wait. Farrakhan UFO. Farrakhan recounts UFO uh, abduction, warns West about retribution for Qaddafi's death. What's Farrakhan the, claims his UFO abductors were Jewish. That's a good one. Oh, wow. I wrote about it. There you go. I forgot about this. I wrote this in, on April 26th of 2007. Louis Farrakhan UFO. He says, I was in a tiny village in Mexico on the 17th of September, 1985. I had a vision-like experience climbing a mountain there on top of which a temple to the Mesoamerican Christ figure Quetzalcoatl, which he spelled wrong. And one of those little UFOs came over that mountain and I was signaled from a group of persons to come. And I was beamed up into that small vehicle and carried to a larger vehicle where I heard the voice of my leader and teacher, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, saying these words to me. In early September, the president met with his Joint Chiefs of Staff to plan a war. He didn't tell me who the war was or against or what not. But early in the next year, it came to me while I was in Ghana that this war was against Libya and Libya's leader, Muammar Gaddafi. So I went there and warned him of what was about to take place, and it did take place. Um, I was transported by a small circular plane, you call it a UFO, to a great mother wheel, before you call me crazy, these wheels can be, will be seen all over America. They will be coming down over the major cities. You will look up one day and see them, and I don't want you to be terrified. They are your friends. He also claims that his contacts were the inspiration for the Million Man March. So the Million Man March was a result of the space people telling Farrakhan to do it, I guess. Wacky. Wacky. It's that kind of stuff that makes you, you know, makes you really want to, is this delayed at all? See if I can hear myself in the uh, the actual microphone headphone thing. God, I hope it's still, yeah, it's still working. Um, well, I don't follow the men in black thing. What's the status nowadays? Well, the, um, it's still, still kind of an... Or? Yeah, Men in Black the last still happening. The last I really heard of any Men in Black thing was during the uh, Stephenville things in Texas. Mm -hmm. I think Linda Howe or somebody had talked to one of the people living around there, and he said that a guy kept showing. He he had seen a lot of these whatever the lights were, or whatever the the strange lights of Stephenville, Texas, from a few years ago, and uh, uh, she said that. Uh, this one guy he, she talked to said that there was some dude kind of coming around at night hanging around like outside of his property, like away from his house. It was far enough away where, you know, the road was, you know, a few hundred feet away. She said the guy would, he said the guy would stand there and look at them. And one time he left a bullet on their property, just like an unused bullet. Um, and uh, that it seemed like this guy was basically just standing around trying to intimidate them. He never really said anything. He just kind of hung out there and, and they never really saw his face or anything like that. And that's the last real kind of men in black story that I've heard. Huh. 
So yeah, the, the men in black thing is, I think there's, you know, I think it's kind of run its course because, uh, and I don't know what, whatever caused it in the first place, you know, is it's, it's, well, what caused it in the first place was actually Albert K. Bender's book, Flying Saucer and the Three Men. I think that took a, it was, and I don't know how much of it is true or not. But what it did was really implant that idea in people's minds, people that were interested in the UFO subject. And it probably implanted it in other people's minds, somebody that could either do that, you know, visit UFO witnesses or threaten them or whatever, and, 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 and gave them some sort of a basis to uh, scare people, I don't know, get in evidence out of them, whatever. Or maybe there was some secret society connect, connected with these things that are, uh, you know, trying to freak people out for some reason. Um, uh, there's the idea that some of these things feed on fear or, or, or um, sexual desire or any real strong emotion. Well, certainly I think our government would be interested in experimenting with those ideas yeah. on unsuspecting citizens. Right. Um, well, a long time ago in one of, I had an interview with Bill Moore in one of my old magazines and I said, well, what do you think about the Men in Black thing? He says, "Well, I do know it was used as a um, as a tactic to get stuff out of people, um, UFO witnesses or whatever, or maybe even people that hadn't seen UFOs that were just somebody they wanted to intimidate, and they would just get somebody that was like a you know a an agent or somebody that worked for the, you know, the government and somehow, and, and maybe they didn't, well, maybe they didn't, maybe they worked for the government, but they weren't on the payroll and they would, you know, have them dress up funny and go over, and intimidate people into giving them evidence and things that they wanted to keep, not because they wanted to keep a secret from people, but because they wanted this evidence. The only way they could figure out to do it was instead, instead of being official about it, they would scare people into it. Or maybe there were people that had nothing to do with, you know, the government and they just went, the only thing they could think of was to scare them out of their, out of their wits by giving them uh, giving up information and materials and things. Who knows? Or it could have been a uh, just a businessman standing out there. <laughs> and I don't know if all the things attributed to Men in Black are. Uh, who well, what knows about if they're since true? The, since the two main guys that uh, who are the two main guys that hypnotize uh, abductees? It was David Jacob Jacobs and, and Bud Hopkins. Yeah. And since they've passed away, have have the uh, the reports of abductees waned somewhat, or is it still going? I think full strength. Can you take a temperature, and do you know? Or last I heard, um, whoops, last I heard was um, that abduction type stuff had kind of dropped off. Really? Yeah. Um. And it seems kind of weird, you know. The top abduction researcher passes away. Um, the other, the other third one that not too many people remember, John Mack, was uh, killed in an auto accident, which was just a drunk driver basically in England. And the third one had some kind of a scandal where he was went kind of nuts and started sending strange messages to one of the uh, people that was asking for his help. Um, that's a whole other thing and a controversy that I don't know the details of and I don't want to get into. But the fact that these leading researchers weren't really saying, are, you know, two of them are gone. 
and the last one isn't saying very much at all, and they hadn't been saying anything new for years, the abduction, as far as I know, the abduction thing kind of dropped off. Now, there may be abduction researchers or hypnotherapists like Yvonne, um, oh, what's her last name? I can't remember names anymore at all. Uh, Barbara Lamb's one of them from Southern California, and uh, I can't remember Yvonne's last name. She's another Southern California researcher. She was actually at that, uh, there was a Whitley Strieber benefit for Roger Lear today she was at um, in Orange County. Um, I can't remember her name. That really sucks. Anyway, those people might have a better idea of what's going on than me. Maybe they're saying, no, it hasn't gone away at all and it's turned into something new. But as far as I know, I mean, the, the, the frequency of people reporting this kind of thing is is uh, gone way down. And it's probably because it's kind of out of style. Yeah, I would think it would take take on a new face or new transformation. I think, yeah. energy would I think be people poured are... into a new, a new deal. People and the phenomenon itself, I think, are kind of waiting until something happens. I, I really think that. I don't know if um, I should give out a phone number because if I give out a phone number, I might not be able to hear what people are saying without it being um, uh, delayed. We can try it. Um, and I can give out the, the Skype number that I have. Let me see. I think I have it in my phone as Skype number. If you want to try and call uh, Radio Mysterioso, try 213-438-9958. 213-438-9958. We'll see if that works. And I'll turn up the volume just a little bit so I can actually hear the uh, phone possibly ring. And if I do answer, there will probably be a delay in, yeah, a delay in how I... Uh, and how I answer or Don answers. Well, let's see if it works. I think one of the new uh, interesting things that I see that that fascinates people are the the ghost shows that I see on TV. Yeah, that's the that's the uh, UFOs have taken a huge backseat to ghosts now. Yeah. And I, I think the ghost thing actually might have it might be at the end of running its course. I don't I don't know what's next though. Well, they seem to be involved in like some sort of technology. Like they have the voice, yeah, the voice thing. They have carry around handheld devices. Oh, you mean about electro voice phenomena, and they carry around devices that measure electro, um, magnetic uh, fields and static fields yeah. and things like that, um, because they seem to think that when there is some sort of apparition or some sort of energy present that would cause a paranormal well, they try to episode talk, that, they try to talk to the uh yeah that's to EVP. The aliens to make them go make the light of the electrometer go on and off oh yeah 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 i think that's interesting yeah and it doesn't always work it's such an inexact i don't know if you can call it a science but it, it's so inexact because you don't you don't get a you know it's more like going out and looking for birds or whatever you don't know if you're ever going to see them or it's be like we're in a cave talking to an echo of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, that could be too. <laughs> Even if it's uh, some subconscious thing that enters in the environment and, and gets fed back to your tape recorder, your digital recorder somehow. I've gone out and tried, and gotten, tried to get, with my digital recorder, this one here that's recording the show, and tried to get uh, voices, and I've never really gotten anything. I've been out there with Walter and a couple other people and recorded, you know, 
us asking questions or just walking through rooms or whatever. You can answer the phone if you want. <laughs> that could be somebody calling. You gave me your phone. Yeah. Oh. Well. Wow, crazy. Anyway. That's a really scary robot voice on your phone there. Yeah, I can't get rid of her. <laughs> yeah, either that, I, the, the Skype was 213-438-9958, or um, the Skype name for the show is Radio Mysterioso. Um, I believe it's one word, R-A-D-I-O-M-I-S-T-E-R-I-O-S-O. And um, we'll see if we can get any uh, calls on that one. Well, it seems interesting that, that the ghost thing would become hybridized with our modern technology. Like, it seems to be uh, ghosts can talk to people over radios. Oh, well, that was discovered in the 1950s, I believe. Because it, I've got a, a record, a CD called The Ghost Orchid. Yeah. And huh, I've got some of it right here. Um it was discovered in the 1950s that people were using shortwave radio and they were getting broadcasts of things that had nothing to do with what was going on on the, uh, uh, what they were listening to. Especially they would hear stuff in between stations. And it got to the point where they could hear things where it sounded like whatever the voices were, were um, answering their questions or answering even un, un, what they said was even questions they hadn't even said out loud. Well, I haven't heard of any, I haven't gotten any emails from discarnate people. No, yeah, emails from the dead. That's that. a whole. That's a whole new one. Let's seed the field with that. Yeah, <laughs> they got thes on this. Oh, I thought I had the ghost orchid stuff on here. I'm sure I did. I wanted to play some of this. I mean, and see if I can see if I can uh, put it on the speaker and you can hear it. Huh. No ghost orchid on here. That's funny. I thought I, I thought it was on this computer. Anyway, yeah. what it is is uh, electro-voice phenomena recordings starting with shortwave radio broadcasts and uh, continuing up to uh, early recordings of electro-voice phenomena. And um, this one guy, uh, it mainly focuses on um, this guy Raymond Cass from England who was active in the 1960s and 70s and the voices he got. And he heard about it through a Swedish researcher. Um, then, of course, the the original uh, there was an original book in 1960. I can't remember the, the year. I think it was the mid 60s called um, Breakthrough by a, a Latvian researcher named Konstantin Raudive, R A U D I V E. Uh, it came with a little 45 RPM record in it, like a flexi disc. Cool. When you bought the record that had some of these recordings that this guy had made of the basically. Um, radio broadcasts and I think also he'd done you know kind of a where he would ask the question like a ghost researcher would and he would find voices later on his on his on his reel to reel tape and uh, they they emphasized that of course they had used you know brand new factory fresh tape it had never been used it hadn't been in, you know exposed to any you know you you can't get an electromagnetic magnetic radiation to put a voice on a tape just by accident. So, you know, they, they were wondering where this stuff came from. Maybe it came through the, uh, 
you know, what would be the first idea? It came through the uh, circuitry of your recording device and just got put on the tape that way. Well, the first idea would be he faked it. Or, yeah, or he faked it. Yeah. That would be the first one. Um, but, but I don't think all these people are faking it. No. I, I think it really does happen, but I don't know exactly how. Um, it doesn't mean it's ghosts. It doesn't mean it's, you know, aliens or whatever. It just means I think there really is a phenomenon here and it really does happen and it really is connected to the people that are doing it. I mean, it's, it's you know, the more often, you know, I'll hear a description of something, at least in these old recordings, that's reacting to something that the experimenter is talking about, thinking about, needs help with in their life or whatever. It'll pop up in a voice on this tape. Uh, on their recordings and it's you know what does that mean either you know that really goes into the realm of are, is it real or are they faking it because you know it's you're not going to pick up random radio transmissions that answer you and use your name it just that's not going to happen not even knowing what the frequency is yeah and they said they'd go in between frequencies it's like they'd, they'd be a normal frequency where everybody would be broadcasting and they'd go you know just off that one or way off in the distance you know in another Area of the band oh, where there weren't hardly any transmissions at all, and they said they seemed to find better voice phenomena in those bands um, than than uh, the, the, the you know the regular ones that everybody was talking on using shortwave, either you know uh, shortwave radio stations or people that had short you know like amateur radio people or airplane traffic or whatever all, all this stuff would come in on like non-scheduled kind of stations i remember reading a book by the i think maybe 20 years ago i think it was about this guy named uh i think his name was mario queros yeah and yvonne can, smith is the name that uh, can, adam just told us yvonne smith yes yeah, she's the uh regression hypnosis abduction oh, researcher oh. from southern california yeah yeah. Very nice woman. I, I don't have any problem with her at all. I don't I don't know if I agree with what she does or what she thinks, but she's you know I think she's sincere and a, and a good person anyway. But she uh, toes the train now. Yeah, some of it. I mean, yeah. it, I think I might have maybe slightly more respect for her because she doesn't have a big you know book out. She doesn't want any movie deal. She's not really doing any of that. I mean, she's just sincerely interested in the subject and um, what's going on with people. Uh, just like uh, Barbara Lamb is, I believe. Huh. Although they, I think, I think they do both charge for regression hypnosis, which is their therapist if they want to do that and people want to pay it. I don't, you know, I don't think they're trying to jip these people. I just think they sincerely think that there's something going on. The people sincerely think they can be helped. So, I, I, I do not know. I, I think they've got too narrow of a focus about what they, they think it's, I believe they think it's aliens coming from other planets to steal our DNA and the whole deal. Um, the basic story, there's very, very much more subtleties to that story that we, that aren't made public um, uh, usually about people's personal lives, um, uh, about some of the messages they might have gotten, they said from these, from space people or aliens or whatever you want to call them. And, um, the funny thing is, a lot of this information that doesn't come out publicly matches across different researchers. Huh. So I don't think it's I don't think they're all faking. I think what it is is it's they've put like we just said at the beginning of the show they've put a meaning on something and locked themselves into that meaning, and that's what all everything they listen to and hear conforms to now is that scenario 
that they've come up with. Well, people are having a, a real experience of some type. I think so. I, I don't know if it's in a majority of, of instances, but I think in at least some of the instances, there's some sort of connection with something that's not human, that is intelligent. Past that, I have no idea. And if I, I had studied it for years and years like they did or like uh, my uh, uh, guest and friend Peter Robbins did, I might have a different opinion. I might be more set in my ways about what I thought it was. But I, I don't, haven't had their experiences, so I don't know. And the, people are still being abducted in their bedrooms? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think it's... As, if you want to really um, read up on the extreme weird... Um, spectrum of all the the, the humanoid, uh, what's it called, the, the humanoid subject as as related to you know UFOs or even just things that aren't human that appear to people and people see. There's a um, there's a site by Albert Rosales called Humanoid Sighting Reports. Oh, um, uh, Adam says the sound quality for the show is really good. Humanoid Sighting Reports from the Journal of Humanoid Studies by Albert Rosales. This is one of my favorite, favorite sites. Look at this. Humanoid Sighting Reports done by years. 237057 BC to 1869, 1910 to 1919, 2000. Looks like the last year he did it was 2009. But, like, let's take a random year here, like 2009, and, and the, the uh, reports on here. Chinle, Arizona, that's in the uh, Navajo Nation, from January 2009. Rangers from the Navajo Nation Department of Rescue Enforcement reported that a Navajo elderly couple, couple and a girl saw a UFO land near their house in a rural area northeast of town. According to the ranger, the occupants of the object went up to the residence and, and used what looked like flashlights to look around the house and the outhouse before leaving. An area of flattened glass, grass was reportedly found at the site. Of the landing, Navajo Nation Rangers have yet to interview the witnesses for additional details. No other information. Um, here's a real good one: Eastern Georgia, USA, January 28, 2009. The main witness was driving with his girlfriend and was just about to pull on her road when he. Sometimes the way these are written up is kind of confusing. When he saw in the tree something that almost looked like a bird. It was 2.1 meters long and about as thick as a good-sized tree trunk. It was maybe 20 feet off the ground and moving away from a tree. It looked down brown and almost feathery. The witness had lived in, in these parts his whole life and had seen every type of known bird that lived in the area. but was convinced what he was looking at was not a bird. It was huge, far too big to be a bird. He thought out loud to himself when he saw it. And his girlfriend asked him what he had seen. He blinked and said there was nothing and no sign of the creature, just the calm swaying of the tree branches. He dropped his girlfriend off and had to drive by the area again, so he figured he'd see if he could spot anything. He only found a good-sized pile of branches on the ground, right under where he'd seen the creature. That's, that's a cool sight. Yeah. Two men were parked in their driveway in Ocala, Florida, in February 2009 when they heard something very large hovering above. When they looked at the sky, they saw absolutely nothing. Then they heard something in the woods behind them and saw several figures with large black eyes looking at them from the woods. When they tried to approach the figures, the hovering noise stopped and the shadowy figures vanished. There's, you know, this thing, it's a great sight. It even has, like, flying humanoid reports from other other parts of the world and the United States and Mexico. I just, like... Everything in there. The guy just does not filter out stuff. He just takes the reports as they come in and doesn't say, well, this must be so-and-so or whatever. No, he just takes it as, as people report it. 
It can be a, you know, it can be a, you know, silvery hovering blob, and he'll report it. There must be a lot of silvery hovering blobs <laughs> since. Uh, what was it? Actually, it's a humanoid. It's it's called humanoid reports. So he he does actually concentrate on things that apparently are humanoid. Did you hear about uh, Walmart had to pull their uh, their uh, their their candle orbs that they had on their shelves? What do they call those things? Uh, they're like a balloon that you put a candle in and it floats away. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen those. Yeah, I love those things. They had to take them off. They had to take them off because everybody was pointing out. I mean, what a what a fire hazard they. Oh, they're a horrible fire hazard. I found a couple of those in the nursery here. Oh, really? Yeah, all burned out, you know, but really sophisticated looking with yeah mylar plastic and really fine wiring and yeah, a, it has to be light so the thing can lift off the ground. And if, yeah, if I was to see that. From afar, that would be mesmerizing. 1967, Seine at Marne, France. Mm -hmm. A farmer observed on a date impossible to reconstruct a flying saucer hovering motionless above the ground through the transparent dome of which he was able to observe a large number of small figures dressed in navy blue laughing and singing. <laughs> that would sound like uh, fairies. I, I love that. That the, You know, the incredibly cool stuff like this. The, if it, this is the only kind of um, uh, UFO porno, porno I'll read anymore. Well, from one standpoint, we we edit and audit the input from the unusual personal experiences that happen to people. We only take into consider ones that we can think to be uh, logical or will fit into our paradigm. Yeah, like. The person that sees Santa Claus with reindeer going across the roof yeah. might not get included. Oh, great. Frankfurt, Kentucky. One more. January 67. Lola Dills was driving when she saw a black object with long spindly legs or stems at the bottom and sides. The side stems were weaving and gesturing and appeared to end in pincers. The creature moved by placing the lower stems one in front of the other. A head consisted of a round part, about eight inches in diameter, that protruded from the top. The sides had a shaggy look, and the front was white with two eyes. A bump with two small holes lower on the head may have been a nose. The mouth was a slit below the bump, and from it it issued a shrill sound, just heard just as she was passing. Then she saw another and another with slight variations. <laughs> it's totally <laughs> creepy, and it's wonderful. <laughs> Big spider thing. Anyway, I encourage anybody that has a lot of, some time to kill and likes those kind of stories, and you know, and uh, you can spend hours on the site. There's thousands of these reports, and most of them aren't. I saw this thing with a big, big head and black eyes. They came into my bedroom. A lot of them is like guy turned around corner and saw you know, um, big bird-like thing crossing road on two legs. He's like, what? <laughs> I know this those sleep paralysis those sleep paralysis sort of would be suggestive of experiences that would happen in the bedroom but people have experiences and all driving the car walking around yeah no well, nobody's calling try radio mysterioso on Skype or what was the number I gave out come on don you remember Two one three four three eight nine nine five eight. 
uh, and then we'll talk to you in, in very stilted way because I'll have to listen to it and let the delay go through. I'm going to have to work on this delay thing. So we'll see what happens with that. We have 40 minutes left. I can't believe we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes or just about. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, do what you, do you think about your the pan idea with Mac Tony's ideas? The ultra terrestrials. Or, no, it wasn't ultra terrestrials. It was. Well, it was, he called it the crypto terrestrials. Crypto terrestrials. Yeah. Well, I think that if there are some kind of. And, you know, people make the mistake of thinking Mac believed this and that was his theory. Uh-huh. No, he was speculating. Yeah. And in fact, his own publisher actually asked me, did he actually. This was after he died. He said, did he believe that? Was that his idea? And I said, no. No, this was just speculation. He, he, I think he said so in the book. It's kind of a thought experiment. Um, but what you're asking about is the, the rebirth of Pan idea and how it compares to uh, to Mac Tony's crypto terrestrials idea. Um, I think if you presented it to Mac, and I think I talked to him about this, he... Um, that was one of the ideas or one of the sets of ideas that informed what he was writing about. And I think his idea would be that whatever these beings were or, or are, um, this separate race, if there is one, know more about these energies and how they relate to the planet and how they relate to the things that live on it and things that are not on it, I guess, and how intimately connected to us it is and how you know, they might have been able to manipulate or control these energies at some point. And maybe still can, but our, we've gotten in their way now, and we've got, there's so much electromagnetic radiation and way too many people and you know environmental problems that it may have messed up this balance of energy, and that's what they're worried about. I think that would have been his take on it. Huh. Hey, Don, did you... Uh, we never talked about, and I don't know if you ever read, you have a copy of... Uh, the released a couple of years ago, um, Carl Jung's Red Book. Oh, yeah. What is in that book and um, why did you get it and have you gotten anything out of it yet? And do you have to be like heavily into to Jungian um, psychology, philosophy, thought to really get anything out of that book or is it just so personal it just doesn't matter? Personal to him, I mean. It's, it's kind of like his personal journal right it's like his personal journal of his journey into the into the collective unconsciousness yeah uh Jung was i guess deeply influenced by uh uh thus spake zarathustra and it's a lot like thus spake zarathustra it's like his conversation with various entities that he that he encountered in the unconscious like Philemon and some other characters. And it was fantastically, richly illustrated. He made paintings of all the different scenes and stuff that was just incredible. But it was a little bit too thick for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was deep. It was like reading uh, the Odyssey or the Iliad. It was really a deep adventure. Uh-huh. And but I was mostly interested in his conversations with with uh, Philemon, 
And he learned a lot of what he had learned about the unconscious directly from Philemon. And what these are entities or beings or something he said that were, were teaching him? Well, I don't know if they were teaching him, but he, he counseled with them and hmm. learned or, from more them. More like a and conversation. Held, and held conversations with them. Did he, what did he consider them to be, like discarnate entities or parts of himself or gods or what did he think they were? Uh, not quite sure. <laughs> I think he must have uh, or did he even felt care? they were parts of himself. I mean, he's quite an intelligent, Yeah, one of the pioneering psychologists of our times. Right. And... So a lot of what we know about the unconscious now comes from Jung and his conversations with Did people. He, they were people. What In fact, of, some of them... But he didn't say you could actually... He didn't like walk up... He couldn't walk up to them on the street and shake their hand. Or could he? Or well, was, or was he, it, a ma- it an imaginal type of thing? Not, not, you know what I'm saying by imaginal? Not imaginary. But an imaginal meaning in the psychological and mind space. Yes. I think they're imaginal. I think he would maybe sit in his garden and have conversations with him. Or at his uh, big place that he had made in Bollingen. Have conversations with him. Or maybe have dreams. Interacting with him in in his dreams. So what would if somebody else was coming into this and and trying to understand what he was doing what would what would be the easiest model for us to understand how he interacted with the whatever these things were I think he didn't want the red book published for fear of what people might think right uh, but what would how how do you think he would explain it to people or if somebody how would you explain it to people what what the interaction was how it occurred and, and uh, how it affected him. Well, maybe he held on to it until after he died so he wouldn't have to explain it. Mm. No, but what do you think <laughs> after reading a bit of it? What do you think was going on? I think he had a, a rich and deep imagination the, the, that is difficult for us to fathom. And people listening shouldn't make the shouldn't make the mistake that imagination means fake or doesn't exist or whatever. He had he had a way of having a conversation. Either this is what I'm getting from it: had a, having a, some sort of conversation either with himself or, like you said, parts of himself or maybe something separate from him that appeared as part of himself, as to make it easier for him to. Uh, uh, Accept the concept that he was talking with something, um, and well, and, and then some people say if you study something, you're interested in something long enough, the answers are there. It's the, the answers are within you. You just have to pull them out. Well, imagination into conscious awareness. Imagination takes on a whole new depth of meaning uh, in archetypal psychology and depth psychology of like James Hillman and and those guys. And uh, James Hillman was uh, influenced also by uh, Sufi scholars. Uh, Henry Corbin, a famous French Islamic scholar, uh-huh. uh, influenced Hillman. And also Ibn el-Arabi, who was a, uh, an Islamic Sufi guy. And those Sufis had... Uh, 
a whole technology of imagination mm -hmm. has come to influence that type, that branch of uh, archetypal psychology. What was it? What what was their uh, what was their idea, and how did it influence? How do you think it in, got to influence Jung, or if it? You know, how was it? How was it sort of the same? I don't think it influenced Jung as much as Hillman. Oh, okay. Uh, but it's the same thing: conversation well, with a something that is not you, but could be, but allows you to move forward in your thinking and conceptualize stuff that you couldn't have normally. I think Jung more addressed concepts of the self, the collective unconscious, in a. And he addressed spirit, the spiritual needs and functions of a, of an individual and the process of individuation. Mm -hmm. And Hillman went more in and attempts to restore the soul to its rightful place. The archetypal psychologists talk a lot about soul and imagination mm -hmm. and putting the soul back through imagination. Meaning that the, most people had lost that, that soul part of them because the imagination and the, the importance that was afforded by, you know, what everybody was telling them, their peers, society, whatever, was, had been forced away. And so that the soul was being lost because we would ignore that yeah, part of ourselves a, and call it only the imagination. That's an interesting observation because uh, uh, in shamanistic circles, there's a, a particular technology, soul loss. Shamans will talk about soul loss, whereas you, you, in our Western culture, we think of the individual that just has one soul, and when it's gone, it's gone, and it's always there, mm. and you only have one soul. Right. Where in shamanistic circles, they can talk about soul loss, where you can lose a, a piece or... It can be damaged or, or get sick and somebody has to go down into the underworld and get it the hell out of there and, <laughs> and put it back. That's, uh, it, it, the unease part is uh, not, not specifically caused by, like, uh, like something you would call a health problem or even a psychological problem. The model for that is reintegrating that lost part back into the person which is what a shaman might do and heal the person that way right a person's uh like i think modern modern people are plagued by what you might call soul loss after all we think of ourselves being estranged in a, in a, in a sea of matter that's insentient and dead and and nothing but molecules spinning in a simple mathematical probabilistic way of just an abstract dryness and people feel lost. And so that's a type of soul loss that's uh, addressed by shamans through soul loss. Yeah. I, it's funny you say that because I was thinking of um, that interview I had with Dean Radin in the book in the excluded middle book and he was talking about faith healers um, and his idea was what they do is they imagine you at a time where you were not sick or you won't be sick and somehow pull you 
with them back to that time and then you know the cancer will shrink and he wasn't saying that it works or he totally believed it or anything he was talking about what's the model for this if it does work and it sounds close to what you're saying um, basically they would empathize with the with the patient so much that they could um, communicate to them or to their conscious or subconscious some way to travel to a place where they were living in a time where the tumor wasn't there or the sickness wasn't there and that the, the the sickness would travel on another timeline where it would go away instead of get worse at least that's the model he was using you know this wasn't meant to be taken literally but as like i said as a model for for what might be going on who knows what the actual mechanism is if it works but using that model was a way to understand what might have been going on with a shaman or a faith healer or whatever you want to call it if that stuff works you know it's and i think that we have this idea that that medicine was primitive and terrible and stupid and all that before modern medicine came along and yes in a lot of cases it was but in, there's uh, you know why are people rediscovering Chinese medicine and Eastern medicine and Hindu medicine, all that? It's because those things work for the people in those cultures. If it, you think right. that, yeah, like you know, if somebody says I can heal people by thought alone, and that, like you know, people keep dying no matter who comes to them, people are going to stop going to him. Well, <laughs> exorcism is still popular in our culture. Yeah, is it? Sure. Really? Well, I didn't know that. exercising demons, removing demons, and healing people and what well, you in uh, evangelistic circles yeah do you know that uh, there's a book called mind wars that just came out and i saw a, a uh, and it was written by i think a french canadian scientist but he argues for the uh you know the for reintroducing the placebo or mental, you know, whatever aspect. He says that our minds have a lot more control over our disease than we think. And it's been proven over and over and over again in a lot of different places. Now, it doesn't work every time, but the, um, the people's mental state seems to have a huge, huge effect. I mean, t sometimes with very serious diseases on how your body fights the disease. Yeah, and it seems ironic that we're always trying to remove the placebo effect from our... Yeah, and he From was saying yeah, he was saying that the you know the placebo and it's a dismissive term saying something. Well, it's a placebo, meaning like it's just a placebo. What it's doing is making your mind work a lot. Your your consciousness work a lot harder on taking care of whatever the problem is and doing somehow telling your body through its defenses doing what it needs to do to help you get out of this whatever the whatever the problem happens to be. And then, you know, there's some things that are probably just insurmountable. But the, the fact that the guy was arguing, what the guy was arguing for gently, I think, was that um, giving you case after case after case after case after case, like for 200-something pages of the effectiveness of the mind in your health and other things. But that was his main thing was, you know, if somebody's got cancer... Not only do you have to put them through cancer treatment, you have to, you know, tell them constantly that it's going to be fine. They're going to get better. They got to fight, and you know, all this stuff. And instead of you know, telling somebody it's hopeless, it sucks. I mean, just tell them that. Even lie to people if you can. If you think it's the doctor thinks it's hopeless. And then I heard some lectures by William Burroughs and other people. Actually, I've read up on it. Of um, 
I'm not sure if they still do this, but doctors aren't even allowed to talk about the patient's outcome when they're under anesthesia. Yeah, because they could still be they can an hear avenue it. of hearing. Yeah. They, they <clears throat> could be knocked out and they can't remember anything, but the... But the uh, well, I had had the prognosis will be a lot better if the doctors don't even talk about it when the person's unconscious. Sometimes I wonder whether uh, alien and UFO abductee experiences are liminal experiences of uh, of uh, colonoscopy. <laughs> you know, that stuff is getting in there after you've been anesthetized. You have bright lights shined on you, and you're having. Uh, Unusual personal experiences, people leaning over you and maybe talking <laughs> about you. <laughs> it might be. Well, that sounds sort of like the birth memory hypothesis, <laughs> hypothesis that people had of abductions, where it, it was just a uh, a memory of like your your um, subconscious memory of your birth. Well, I don't really take it seriously. I was just entertaining myself. I know. <laughs> That's why I laughed. <laughs> well, you know the. Uh, an interesting thing I read about was, uh, have you heard of extraction healing? No, no. Where a shaman will like lean over you and and uh, suck something out of you. And oh, that hold sounds it like in their a, hands. Yeah, that sounds then, like the Filipino doctor thing. And then thing. spit out some chicken guts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think early I'd read by... Uh, an anthropologist, I won't say who his name is or anything, but he had gone there and studied the Hivaro, and they would be doing it. J-I-V-A-R-O. Yeah, J-I-V-A-R-O, Hivaro Indians, I think in South America. Yeah. And they would do some extraction healings. And the earlier anthropologists that had visited them then claimed that the, that the shamans were frauds. Yeah. But you what know, was happening to their patients? Their patients, I don't recall the effect of the healing. But the, the, the interesting thing was that this anthropologist further uh, queried all the residents of the town, and it seemed that a lot of the people already knew. That, that he was a fake? But it was no big deal. It's, they didn't it was, care. It was part of the deal. It was like going to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation and watching those guys wrestle. So they, they knew it was fake, but they suspended also... suspended yeah. disbelief. It was like going to a movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's really cool, actually, to hear that. It's a kind of an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah. And so healing... If you were willing to suspend disbelief, possibly. Yeah. And say, in this case... Possibly some healing could come yeah, about yeah. through an experience like that. Mm -hmm. There's, we have 20 minutes. I think we can fill up the 20 minutes with it. one other thing I want to talk to you about. I didn't script any of this, and I, didn't, you know, I just thought, well, I know Don. I've known him for a long time. We can talk about whatever. Don was the person that told me about the wonderful book, Conjuring Up Philip. Oh, yeah. And he loaned me the book. And I, I've read it, and it's absolutely fascinating. And we're, you know, it, you reminded me because we were talking about a placebo effect, or you know, creating something because your mind thinks it is. Um, why don't you describe what happened in the book? I won't do it. I'll let you talk. Well, from what I can remember, this group of people they had a meditation circle. Right. That's the background, 
And so they had some, they wanted to do an experiment where they would conjure up a, a spirit, but they were all meditating together before they conjured Philip. That's, yeah. I think, important to keep but, in the yeah. background. And they knew from the start that it, they were all, this was somebody that was made up. Right. They weren't conjuring up some discarnate spirit. They specifically, consciously made up a person. I think they each took turns in ver inventing and writing various aspects of them. Some of them drew pictures of them. Others drew some historical background of them. Yeah. And they all participated in his... Uh, Creation. Embodiment, I would say. Yeah. Maybe. And for a while, nothing happened, but then they started getting effects, and it got to the point where they were, like, doing it in front of TV cameras and everything. I guess they had table wrappings and some yeah. table levitation going so on. So either something strange was going on here, or, like, six or eight or ten people were faking it like mad. Yeah, there was a... I think there was a psychologist there, too, to support them. Right, in right. In case anything caught fire. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but the, yeah, through something that they all knew and were consciously knew that was made up, they started getting communication. They started getting answers from whatever this was. Um, like you said, table wrappings for answers, psychokinetic effects. The table would lift up and they all had their hands on it and start moving around the room. Um, there was a uh, multiple times, I guess they did it for TV cameras, and the, th the table just shot up in the air and moved around with them or turned on its side or whatever. The table they were using. So, you know, when we, this is, you know, the, I'm glad Don told me about that and loaned me the book and it just really helped me, you know, not helped, I don't know what it is, but it really informed my opinion about, you know, this co-creation thing. If people can make up something and have it have effects, you know, what? how far does that go? I mean, it's... Yeah, uh, it makes me wonder how far they could have gone with it. Yeah, and how far, how far can it go, you know... Uh, in, in I get in real life when you're not in a situation where people don't think they're making it up and they think it's some separate thing. Is it some separate thing or is it just their subconscious or a collective subconscious drawing upon an expectation? I think it's important information. Yeah. It's uh if you can find that book, it's a sorely underread and underappreciated and unknown book. And uh Was it you told me there'd been a sequel of some sort? Or? That wasn't me that told you. I think I heard that. That some other people did some more work. I don't know. I oh, it might have been in the book itself, they actually said that. Or maybe I looked it up online. Maybe people that are, people that are listening can look it up. But the yeah, if you can find a copy of Conjuring Up Philip or read up on it, it's uh it's you know these outlier things we've been talking about that people don't really too, pay too much attention to, like the Philip book or um, uh, Rick Strassman's DMT uh, studies. All of these things are, you know, it. I think that people that are interested in the paranormal should know about these things because it it enriches our 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 understanding, and I think can lead to a better and maybe deeper understanding if if people can get enough of these influences in there and maybe it'll lead to think uh, some sort of uh science of this where you can have almost reproducible on demands effects like an evp or a table wrapping or you know even something as robust as a bigfoot showing up or a flying saucer landing somewhere 
Well, I feel uh, like and that we're... doesn't mean that it's fake or not there or we made it up. It's it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a co-creation. I feel like we're gathering pieces and still gathering information. We, yeah, we still don't have enough. Uh, yeah, I enough mean... maybe to put it together, but we're getting there. It sort of reminds me of uh, Julian Jane's uh, breakdown of the bicameral mind. I never read that. I should. Yeah, you should you should look into that. And there was also a sequel to that too, that a bunch of his associates uh, wrote about him and and his and his theory. What was it? I think the theory is that uh, at one point in our consciousness, the two halves of the brain were separated, and basically one side was talking to the other, and the person would hear it as a voice, hmm. and so. Julian James was a psychologist involved in schizophrenia as well, and that was one of his theories, was that it was sort of a breakdown, that one side would be talking to the other. It's, sometimes people can have episodes where they start hearing voices and sounds, and it could be related to that, to the, to the bicameral mind. His, I think he thought the illustrating... Uh, literature about it was the difference between the Iliad and the Odyssey in huh. Greek thought. Yeah. Because I think in one of them, gods are talking to the individual. Right. And then in the other, it's just a guy having adventures in war, talking to his friends. And he thinks that the, that the breakdown of the bicameral mind happened about at that period of time. During when? During the Iliad and the Odyssey. Oh, okay. Not when it was written, but when they were supposed to have happened. Uh huh. So everybody before that in in Western civilization had voices in their heads. Possibly that was one of his ideas: is that people were being commanded by voices in their heads, and their behavior was being controlled by voices in their heads or gods. Hmm. Yeah, there's an interesting branch of of uh, magic that I read about. Yeah, an ancient branch of magic, where statues could be uh, given life and made to speak. Oh, okay. Which I thought was sort of interesting. And one of uh, Julian Jane's strange remarks about some of those images, which look strangely like aliens with large eyes, <laughs> he felt that the large eyes were iconographic of speaking types of statues and images that would speak to people. This was in that breakdown of the bicameral mind book. Yeah. Really? When was yeah. it written? That was 1975, 80. Way before the uh, alien thing came along. Mm. There's no mention of aliens or anything in it. No. Yeah, I thought that was really quite interesting about the big eyes. Yeah, well, it's it, shocking. Remember Alistair Crowley's Lom, the uh, the teacher, he said that the, the he could look into the eyes and get get information that way. Well, don't all the abductees complain about the big bug-headed guy looking yeah. looking at him in the, with their black eyes? Yeah, and they also say if they look into their eyes the communication happens. Yeah. That could be some backdoor thing action happening. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, what I haven't done yet, which is the um, uh, the lucid dreaming. 
Oh, yeah, have you done any of that? I haven't done it yet because I keep telling Donna, like, I keep thinking, i got to have time to do this and i got to have the perfect time. And it's like, I must be chicken or something because I never find the perfect time to do it. But it's, uh, it's through its, uh, administration of certain herbs and things like this, you can pop yourself into a lucid dreaming state, right? Yeah. Supposedly. Basically amping up your choline. Right. Taking some choline supplements. Right. Uh, the first time I tried it, I had a lucid dream right off the bat. But in subsequent tries, I haven't been able to repeat it. Yeah, there's always. it sounds like the, uh, paranormal, the uh, psychic thing, the beginner's luck. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, it's the placebo effect. I think it's the really? novel and suggestiveness of it that might have had an, a, a, an effect. Okay, because the Sometimes first time I, I did that. a remote viewing thing, I got really close to what the thing was that were the target. Mm -hmm. And then the next time wasn't so good, and then it just dropped off into horribleness. But the first time I was almost exactly on. So what, what happened? What, what were these supplements and what... What was the timing on them? How did you do it? It was uh, choline bitartrate. Yeah. And this other supplement called GPC, I think, which helps uh, inhibit the breakdown of choline in your brain. Oh, so it keeps it there for long. It's kind of like an MAO inhibitor for, for choline. Yeah. <laughs> it's an inhibitor. Sort of. Yeah. Inhibits a breakdown. And so the idea is to wait right until you enter your REM sleep and then take some of these supplements and just hang there in a liminal state, not falling asleep all the way, but right. but not, not awake. Being, being awake. And, and, and then when they kick in, you s suddenly go down a, a rocket sled, wind up in a in a dream state. I was shocked. Yeah. How, how do you mean a rocket sled? Well, I sort of experience a rushing sound. Yeah. And a rushing, accelerating type of feeling uh -huh. and a spinning. And next thing, I'm in a dream. Hmm. And you knew you were in the dream. It wasn't I knew like, I was in the dream. Damn it, I'm in a dream. Yeah. I'm really in a dream. I can't believe it. Yeah. Uh, it were you able to control the experience or just you were just taking it in? No, and... it was so novel and exciting. That pretty, The excitement and novelty of it just took over and I wasn't able to do anything whatsoever except... That sounds like the one or two um, like Satori type experiences I've had where I've done this exercise where I turn off all external... And it's a lot easier to do in the middle of the night. But you turn off all external stimuli and stop... What You don't turn it off, you stop assigning meaning to it like if you hear a bird you don't imagine a bird in your head anymore and if you hear the air conditioner you don't imagine the air conditioner running anymore if you hear a car go by outside that's not a car it's just a sound don't have a car image in your head when you hear the car sound and it took me first time i did it, it took me like 45 minutes or more just to stop that until i got to a state where the all sensory and you have to close your eyes otherwise you just, it's not going to work all sensory input my breathing was not my breathing anymore. It was just a sound. All this stuff, all sensory input had no meaning attached to it. Huh. And when that happened, that was just like you. It was like, it was like a rocket sled. Suddenly I was like, oh my God, you know. So it, I got shot into some level of consciousness that I'd never been in before. 
But as soon as I gave in to the oh my god of it, it shut off. I mean, it was literally like a second. And then it just shut off. It just shut off and I was back to my normal state of mind. I think, too, there's a danger of uh, in lucid dreaming of trying to commodify our dream state too much. Mm. You know, like like trying to exploit it like it's some new piece of real estate that you've discovered that <laughs> can be dig a hole in and mine or Yeah, well that yeah, that's like giving in to the 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 awe of the experience. And it also sounds like, you know, when people have a psychic gift, they start trying to control it or use it, it starts going away. Right. It has to you you have to be in like this weird zen state where it's you accept the input, but you don't judge or try to steer it. Is that sort of what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I think so. I think in some ways we try to control our dreams too much. or get When you're aware of them. Yeah, when you're aware of them or try to exploit them too much or try to in- interpret them too heavily and mm-hmm. not let a dream just be a dream. It would seem, seem a sad pity if we were lucid all the time in our dreams, then that mean, mean there would be no more dreams and dreams would be over. And that would be a what do you tragedy. Mean, you, what do you mean they'd be over? You mean there would be no difference between There'd the waking no consciousness and Yeah, the, it'd just be another experience. That sounds almost like the Hindu idea where the, uh, the, the universal self is involved in a dream, but it's, it's, uh, it can control that dream. And it, that's what, you know, that's the, uh, the, I think that's the idea behind a lot of the Hindu religion. The is Maya? That, or... Yeah. It, well, the Maya is the, is the illusion. It's the, uh, it's the illusion that the dream we're living in or that the universal self is living in is, is reality and not just this game that's going on. If you give into the being so serious about this is the reality and not just a, basically a a drama that's going on forever and ever then that's that is the downfall the downfall is when the when this when the dreaming when the self realizes that it's thinks that it's not dreaming and really everything is going is going on as it thinks it is and it's not because that i think that's the basis of the hindu religion or a lot of the hindu religion is the idea that the whole of existence is basically a play being put on by by a conscious a universal consciousness to keep itself occupied (laughs) that's interesting it sort of brings us back to what our original topic of discussion was a lot of early or a lot of philosophers would that was a point of argumentation was some philosophers felt that there was no way of uh, telling whether you were dreaming or not right yeah, what's the what's the dividing line between the the dreaming and the waking and the you know all that and everybody has I think a lot I think that that line is different for everybody and some people are you know way off the middle path on that to one way or the other. Like, I like to I like to go I like to think that I have binocular vision. <laughs> you know, one eye I can see. A scientific perspective, yes, and another eye. I have like a mystical right. perspective, and I try to, I try to balance them out and not, 
run too you much can't in really, one direction. You can't or the really other. balance them out. They're like no, contending, and they're, they're you can't really balance them out. But they're they're like standing there, and they're like the devil and the angel. Although I'm not going to say one's positive and one negative. Standing on either side of you, giving you little suggestions as to why you should believe one or the other. But the problem is, I think, for a lot of things, is if you totally believe one or the other, you stop thinking about it and you stop growing. And you yeah. stop ending up eventually looking like a fool for being stuck in your ways, I, I think. And it, it, there's, you know, there's mystical aspects to, all, to scientific things and there's scientific aspects to a lot of the mystical things. And I think... The new, you know, I'm always making fun of new agey people. I'm always making fun of hardcore skeptics, um, scientific fundamentalist type people, because I think they're both, like you just said, now they're they're closing themselves off to, you know, fifty percent of human experience, or in their case, more than fifty percent. Right. Like I think the uh, the mystical side, a religious side of our nature, we inherited long ago. Yeah. And occupies a deeper strata of our, of our consciousness, right. the whole mythology thing. Yeah. And you can't just willy-nilly make that go away. Yeah. It probably even crops up in our scientific thinking. Yeah. And we negate it. Yeah. Try to ignore it. You know what? I, I, I love my computer because it's, this is not a mystical thing. It's a bunch of circuits. With a, with a with a you know with a screen on and you can explain to just about anybody how it works if you take enough time, but the point of the the fact that we're sitting here talking about this and I can read about humanoid sighting reports on it or bring up like this pattern that I can you know I can meditate to or whatever, that's totally cool. I mean the the, the computer is such a, a such a good example of that. That's crazy. Our our memory is now encoded outside of our bodies. Yeah. <laughs> well, it used to be, but it was harder to access it. Now, you know, anybody with an internet connection and a halfway decent computer can access it. And you can get a computer for like a couple hundred bucks or less. I know. Where you can have access to all these things. You know, that that to me that yeah, that's magical and it's being done through a scientific means, but it's giving you access to this other side of the brain, too, the other side of humanity. Well, there'll be consequences. I can't even add things up without a calculator. <laughs> and you and, run a business. And I, Yeah, and I can't, I don't keep an address file anymore. I, I just, why should I keep an address file when I can look things up on the Internet? Yeah. Why should I uh, add things up when my computer will do it for me? Yeah, I can talk. And just in the short span of my life, I, I can feel it happening. Yeah. This is magical to me. Let, 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 this is my phone. What is 352 times 865? Okay. Here you go. It shows me. Exact result, 304,480. I didn't even have to press a button. I just asked it. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy talk. <laughs> oh, I've discovered, a, just to be totally silly, I've discovered something else. I need to hide a body. <laughs> what kind of place are you looking for? Cremation services, metal foundries, funeral services, mortuaries, or dumps? Dry and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> the high desert. Yeah. 
Plenty of dumps in the high desert. <laughs> so, you know, if, if somebody could tell me I could talk to my phone when I was a teenager and it would tell me, give me answers to stuff, you know, I, I would have said they were, it, that was crazy talk. Or at least, no, what I would have said is, when's that going to happen? Is it's, it going to happen while I'm still alive? It seems like the internet is like our collective unconscious in a way. Yeah. Because all the, it seems like all the dark and spooky ideas that I could possibly think of, <laughs> if I type them in there, yeah. it'll come out. Yeah. Some motherfucker has thought of it. Yeah. It's scary. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's at the end of um, True Stories, a David Byrne film. He, the last thing, and all the credits run and everything, you stand at the end, right at the end is one line that says, if you can think of it, it, ex it exists. Yeah, <laughs> and literally, that's that's true with the internet. And this was, so, I think, True Stories was before the internet. So the internet is actually becoming part of our neural neural network. Yes. Yes, definitely. Do you want to keep going? It's 10.02 now. You want to go jump in the pool? Yeah. Yeah, let's go jump in the pool. <laughs> Don, did you uh, enjoy doing the show oh, here? This is, I really enjoyed being on Radio Mysterioso. This is quite awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, Don's been listening for years. I've known him for years. He's turned me on to so much cool stuff, um, a lot of which we've talked about on the show. And, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like you meet people and, you know, you eventually find out that they're you know, in a way, they're friends, but they're also teachers, and that's what Don's been for me, and that's um, I'm thankful for it. So thanks, Don. Well, thank you. I'm quite flattered to hear that. <laughs> All right, Radio Mysterioso will probably be back next week, and I don't know if I'll be in the studio or I'll be here. So Miles, if you want to take the um, the feed, you know what? I'll play a song. I'll play a song before he takes the feedback. Uh, what should I play? Can you think of anything, Don? But I don't, I don't know if I'll have it on here. Look, here's the ghost orchid stuff. The ghost orchids. Yeah, that's not songs, but they're, um, what's the very shortest little, let's see if I can hear this. Okay, here's one called She this Doesn't Bother. I'm going to let Don hear it. Oh, hey. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can hear it. Oh, really? I think, uh... No, it's, it's a radio. Yeah. Oh. I'm going to say something. It's coming through the short Oh, I see. That's a recording from the 1970s of uh, this research. I think it's Raymond Pass uh, recording from um, shortwave radio broadcasts. Um, I think you can get the Ghost Orchid. You can download it now. I think it's actually on iTunes. Wacky, huh? Anything weird? Topless skeleton. Where's that? Oh, skeleton topless. That's uh, the. I believe that's the uh, Messer Chups. We will see you next week. I'm going to give the uh, headphones to Don so he can hear the song.
and you can uh, uh, fade us out anytime you want, Miles, uh, and switch back to um, the uh, anomaly radio feed. So thanks for listening. Thanks again, Don. And here's Skeleton Topless by the Messer Tubes. It's uh, basically, it's horror surf music. Queen of spades. Four hearts. Eight of spades. Two spades. Jack of diamonds. Jack of clubs. God is dead. Oh, God, I will kill you, Milton. Oh.